So they said it couldn't be done, but here we are, football on focus, two weeks in a row after, uh, what was it we had? We started the year prolifically, uh, we had a month off, and now we're back prolifically. This is Football Unfocused. Um, my name is Mark. The guy you can hear there sort of sniggering in the background, that's, that's Matthew, my co-host. Say hello, Matthew. Hello. Hello, Mark. How are you? Oh, really well, thank you, Matthew. We've spent, <laughs> it's, so, it's so contrived because we've just spent like half an hour like, <laughs> shooting the breeze and yet we have to like pretend. It's like on, a, you know, the, the rest is politics when uh, Alistair Campbell oh, yeah. and, and uh, Roy Shute, they'll sort of say like, take care, see you soon at the end of each one. They know they're going to record probably the next one the minute they stop recording that one. And they'll say, like, see you soon. Yeah. They're not they're um, not just immediately then hanging up the Zoom call, are they? <laughs> and Rory Stewart's often like intersperses an episode with flights throughout the Middle East. And they have yeah. to keep sort of mashing it together. That yeah. would be my worst nightmare from an editing perspective. It's yeah, it's almost well, as bad. It's almost as bad as the time when you stopped a podcast halfway through, went to the pub, got pissed and came back in it and then finished the recording of God, I did actually do that, didn't I? I don't even remember I don't even remember, I don't even when, remember that. When that was. But it did happen, didn't it? Yeah. Fuck. Bloody hell. The last three years have just um it just they're just all blurring a one. I don't know. I I still haven't you know, I don't think I'll still you know like it, it, everyone for like throughout twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one was going on about oh I can't you know, I've lost all perception of time and everything's just been ruined by the pandemic. And that that's now well and truly over. But yet, that's still my mindset. I'm still <laughs> locked in. Yeah. yeah that, is, that is represented by the way I'm uh, living my life. But that's not what we're talking about, Matthew. We're here to talk about football. We've got some juicy topics to cover today um, for our millions of uh, rabid listeners who will be foaming at the mouth at the idea of me and you really chewing the fat over the uh, the meaty uh, topics and hot potatoes of the last week. But before we begin, as is tradition, I shall be asking um, some questions that are designed to delve into the the mystery um, behind the man, the uh, the detail, the juice in the, the tin, the fruit cocktail that is Matthew. Uh, Matthew, what do you wear around the house? uh my casual casual very casual stuff um yeah things that are stretchy stretchy yet um like comforting like you know so i don't like jock strap (laughs) yeah uh not so much the job. We we talked about jock straps before. Well, I've sent you yeah. a few pictures of them at least. You have, yeah. yeah. Um, Gimp suit. You wear that? Uh, no, Around that's there. generally a bit restrictive. Yes. I've found. Right. Well, it depends but... on what material you go for. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, joggers. These natural materials are a lot more forgiving. <laughs> but yeah, I have recorded this. <clears throat> I have rec- when it was hot. I have been in a vest, and I think you were a bit. Oh, I know. You were a bit un- unamused or unimpressed. It wasn't unamused. I was sort of uneasy. Really. Yeah, uneasy. Looking that's up and seeing yeah, you yeah. sort of like red in the face, sweating with a vest <laughs> on. Especially because I couldn't see you from your sort of chest down. And oh, yeah. I was suspicious of worse. any movements I saw in the shoulder area <laughs> and what was going on in the depths. Um, so I guess the point of my question about what you wear around the house is because I'm just wondering, because some people basically wear the same stuff around the house, don't they, as they wear would wear out. 
Uh, um, yeah. Some people pajamas. wear casuals, yeah, essentially sit around in their fucking pajamas all day um, and then will change when they go out. But some people these days, it seems to have, it just has become fine to walk, for example, to the convenience store at the end of the road in your fucking slippers your and, uh, and pajama bottoms uh, and just, you know, start, you know, buying a tin of baked beans and uh, 12 B&Hs. So, <laughs> you know. Where do you stand on those things, Matthew? Where where are your standards at? Yeah, I think if I wore pyjamas, I guess that might be tempting. But Mm. I think we've had this discussion. We've discussed before. You don't don't wear pyjamas, do you? I don't wear pyjamas. Indeed. Don't you sleep au naturel? (laughs) I do. I do. But I change the sheets very regularly. I'm glad (laughs) to hear it. I will never... I mean, you ne- you'll you never, never sleep in my bed. But I was going to say, I will never, I will never, I will never come to your property and sleep on sheets that I haven't seen literally be removed from a wash load and dried in front of my face. Uh, unless that's the case, I'll I just slept bring on your sleeping bag, sleep on the floor. <laughs> I slept on your couch recently. You did, excuse me, and I was fully clothed. I didn't change. I didn't even. I well, didn't I mean, that was off. yeah, that was during that really like properly freezing cold spell not long before Christmas when um, the, it sort of snowed at the beginning of the week and then even though there was no further snow, it didn't melt at all because I don't think the temperature got above one degree for the next like 10 days. Yeah. And, you know, you'd have been a brave man to get down to the nip um, sleeping on the sofa <laughs> down there in an old sort of Victorian terrace gaff with, uh, you know, that th- that's got like floorboards that let draft come up at, <laughs> out of the ground. Although we did like the, uh, the, the fire for you, didn't we? To keep you warm. You did. Totally it was lovely. It was lovely. You, you yeah. threw the, um, the leftovers of our takeaway into it just to keep it going. Yeah. Not, not the food. Yeah. <laughs> no. the, the boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't the way to go. You know, You're supposed to use just dried, dried wood. Definitely dried, dried leftover. Or the opposite, I forget. Um, <laughs> good. So, so in other words, you don't wear because I, I just to give you a bit of an insight into myself. Yeah, I was always the sort of person who you know I had like a a standard, almost like uniform. In I, I wear jeans and a jumper, or jeans and a t shirt, and I wear that where regardless of whether I'm sitting watching telly or whether I'm you know going shopping. Whereas. The lockdown that we've already mentioned today, you know, we're still dealing with the hot topics, um, <laughs> did change that. I have to admit, for the first time in years, I invested in jogging bottoms. Yeah. And now I've got four or five pairs that I have on rotation. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, they, they've, they really have been a game changer. But I, but I still, I'm old school enough. I don't wear them out. Like, I don't ever leave the ass wearing them. I'm, yeah. I'll, I'll dress properly before, even if it's just to take. Take the, take my lodger up to the uh, you know the shops to, to to pick up, for example, a a loaf of uh, sourdough on a Friday. <laughs> Keeping it real, uh, Matthew. Question two: At school, did you generally have packed lunch or school dinners? Uh, packed lunches, yeah, mm. I did. Um, but what I sort did... of things did you used to have in your packed lunch? I, I feel awful. My mum used to make some quite nice sandwiches, but I think I just generally ate the penguin and then try and see if I can scab some chips off somebody. Um, yeah. Which is all. But she, she'd she make me like... Prawn. What did you do with the sandwiches then? I can't remember. Maybe I'd leave them in there. Just, I don't know. It's awful, really. Maybe I... 
I remember I gave my prawn mayo sandwiches to somebody. That is awful, isn't it? Because I was just like, I don't like sandwiches. That's way too uh, fancy and sort of middle class a, a sandwich to give to like a, say, like, we're we talking secondary school here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to so give to like a 13, 14 year old boy. Because yeah, yeah, a 13, 14 year old boy doesn't really want to be seen eating a prawn sandwich. <laughs> well, that was yeah, my credibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, is is I mean, you had zero credibility as it was. But like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Look what yeah. that cunt is eating. Oh my days! Yeah, exactly. Look at him. <laughs> literally drawn sandwich brigade before Roy Keane even uh, used yeah. that term. So you used to you don't remember what you did with the sandwiches, but you'd rarely actually eat yeah. the sandwiches that your yeah. mother lovingly made for you. Know, awful, awful. That is pretty terrible. Well, did you, you feel bad about? It? I do. Did you did you I, I can't imagine if I. I mean, if I made so when I made Joe lunch, if she was just like, I'm not eating that after I made yeah. them. I would be a bit upset. Yeah, yeah, she probably. Yeah, that, well, yeah, it's just when I make her soup. When I make her soup, she really kicks off. But yeah, she still yeah. eats it in the end. <laughs> when you say make, do you actually mean make soup? No, or no, no. Warm it up. Warm it up. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, let's just hope your mum never lis- never listens to this podcast. I mean, it's pretty unlikely, isn't it? Well, I haven't uh, told her ever. So you've never told you've not even told her you do it. No. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> Good. So, and, and one thing I will say is that the idea that you would waste your packed lunch and then go and start scavenging uh, chips off people who had paid for your school dinners um, really it shows me that your character has changed very little uh, since you were at school, if at all. You're essentially no. exactly the same person. No, I know. What I know. What I hope is there for. Do you, do you worry about what your what kill, what your lodger will be like at twelve thirteen? You just think you are going to be just like that when you're forty one. I mean, the trouble is, the trouble is, I think that you always start up when you take on a lodger with the idea that they're going to be this sort of you know better version of what came before. But the chances are that they're going to be a hostage to fortune and probably end up disturbingly similar to the sort of things that that you know you did. I mean, I used to get told throughout my childhood that I was, um, you know, almost alarmingly similar to, to my old man. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, goodness knows, goodness knows what uh, my lodger will end up will end up doing. Who knows? I mean, got a little while until we worry about that stage. I mean, he's currently, um, he's currently as, as you may be able to hear in the background, uh, listeners, uh, sev- quite severely kicking off yeah, um, with his mum. And he's, he's he'll be dribbling all over. He's got a new, like, table chair with like an activity table thing that he just sits and spends tr- trying to get everything in his mouth and it produces so much dribble that the the the, the sort of plastic um sort of you know table thing that you lift off you, you lift it off and it's like that it's like there's an ocean underneath oh, an ocean yeah. of phlegm oh. it really it really is disgusting <laughs> Matthew last question um but that's the trouble when you take on a lodger um, <laughs> Matthew, do you own an encyclopedia or atlas? Was this the question you were, you were struggling to come up with? Yeah, just before I was I, like, oh, I haven't got a third question. And because I'm <laughs> sitting in the uh, upstairs holding room um, in order to give my lodger free reign of the house, um, uh, there just happened to be an encyclopedia in front of me <laughs> and, and an atlas. I don't, oh, um, I don't. So, yeah. But do you own either of those? No, I don't. And it's like Did you ever? Bit- yeah, I think so. Maybe a, an, a, uh, an encyclopedia at some mm. point. But mm. no, an atlas. Do you think they're outdated? What? Do you think oh, the internet has the, basically fucked yeah, the encyclopedia? Yeah. I think we've got an atlas in the car or a map. 
Do you just call them maps? Yeah, isn't that an A to Z? Yeah. Very different it's thing, a, isn't it? It's, it's a different thing. The whole world. Oh, yeah, right. Atlas is essentially like well, a book version of a globe. Well, the UK and France, <clears throat> I think we had. <laughs> yeah, incredible. That That's the most 80s slash early 90s sort yeah. of reference, yeah. In the glove compartment, have a UK and France, yeah. Because you were going on a 1992 driving holiday to the Dordogne. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. So partridge. <clears throat> right, Matthew, football. So... Obviously, the last week, I, I'm hoping that we can actually have a, you know, not not, not so much a debate because we'll, we'll probably uh, agree on a lot of the, the sort of issues at hand, but a, an actual conversation rather than me having to launch into a monologue this week. Because <laughs> even though it's now, we're recording this on Thursday, so it's two or three days since the um, resolution of hostilities between uh, supposedly the BBC and Gary Lineker, but ultimately it was the government and Gary Lineker, wasn't it? which is a subject worthy of discussion. And who could have anticipated at this time last week when we recorded um, last week's edition that a slightly sort of contentious simmering row about, you know, some some Tories, particularly Tory uh, backbenchers, getting a bit pissed off that Gary Lineker, who, you know, receives a, a, a good salary from a... Ta- you know, a license fee funded role at the BBC is having the audacity to speak up about um, his opposition to UK immigration policy. But it was a bit of a storm in the teacup at that time and it didn't really feel like it was going anywhere and it maybe felt they had dealt with. But literally the day after we recorded, obviously, the di- Director General of the BBC announces that Gary Lineker was essentially suspended. I think he tried to give the impression, didn't he, that, that there was an agreement between the two of them that until they'd found a solution and how they were going to work moving forward that um that, that he, he would take sort of a back seat for a while but then the fact that every every pundit on match of the day every potential replacement pundit on match of the day and then large um 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 portions of the sort of bbc wider bbc broadcasting um team just essentially said we're not working this weekend um took the issue to a whole new level and showed essentially that um, there is clearly, you know, extensive and widespread opposition to interference from outside from the way in which our sport broadcasters are... uh, Sorry, sorry, no. There is obviously a lot of scepticism and resentment to the way in which our sport broadcasters feel that possibly over the last few years the infringement of sort of you know government uh slash management um uh, involvement in what they kind of are allowed to say and do particularly in their free time it's just becoming more and more of an issue and the readiness of which people were just prepared to say nope i'm gone everyone out like an old school you know sort of strike clear the clear the shop floor led to a, a sort of bizarre weekend of these two really sort of dystopian editions of Match of the Day, these sort of like so joyless Soviet-style uh, <laughs> um, broadcasts <laughs> that were like truncated to sort of 20 minutes, very brief highlights of each game, no commentators, so just crowd noise. Part of that uh, is actually quite interesting to watch, you know, but 
But that doesn't mean, by the way, that the I'm not one of those absolute arseholes who said, "Oh, it was actually much better." You know, I hope yeah, it was I read it I've read one of those articles that actually said something. Yeah, that. of course. Oh. And who do you think? And who wrote it? Some yeah. twat from a you know, mouthpiece. In a, in, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you know, in, from exactly the, the the organs of the press who have a vested interest in you know an agenda against the BBC anyway, but. Um, but it's just incredible, really, how that escalated and then how it's been resolved in a way that essentially by Monday they were crawling back to Gary Lineker. And even though they can't bring themselves to admit it, he absolutely smashed them. He won the yeah. PR battle. He's won the uh, the, the um, sort of public the battle of public opinion. Um, he's won the battle of numbers, just purely in terms of these media organisations. And I think it, I like to think as somebody who, you know, much as I do try and sort of, you know, uh, uh, jokingly pretend to uh, support uh, some elements of this um, this awful, unprecedentedly awful regime that are currently in charge of this country, um, I, I maybe over-optimistically like to think that it might be a bit of a line in the sand moment and that, uh, you know, this was... Uh, a sort of a, a you know enough is enough and uh, actually you know i don't know think things are so stacked in the favor of the uh, of the powerful in 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 this country you know we've got we've got a bunch of people in charge who've run the country for 13 years whose friends and and financial backers own and control almost all of the um, the information that comes to us through the particularly through the written press but then their online versions of that, and then that, the impact that then, that then has on the amount of you know su- secretly funded think tanks that feed into government policy, and that all of that money comes from again that same pool of you know influential media barons and, and billionaires, even though they like as the term secretly funded suggests, they uh, like to keep that um, uh, pretty quiet. And I think the BBC has always been the kind of um, some people like to say, you know, the sort of twats who like to say, oh, but, you know, it's, it's the same, you know, on both sides. And uh, uh, and it would be exactly the same. When Labour were in power, they would have battles with the BBC. Yes, that's true. That You know, Alistair Campbell famously had a massive battle with the BBC over the uh, uh, lead-up to the Iraq war and the Andrew Gilligan um, um, sort of fabrications in the media. But that, there's a big difference between that and a regime that we've currently got and have had for some time who, who seem to have a vested interest in in systematically destroying the BBC because they oppose everything that it stands for. They oppose, they would like an ultra libertarian open free market of news media, similar to America where, you know, which essentially leads because of its complete lack of regulation, essentially leads to um, no such thing as sort of impartial news and similar to the way people make a deci- an ideological decision when they buy their newspaper, they do exa- make exactly the same decision in terms of the, 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 the news that they watch. They choose the channel that has an editorial policy that aligns with their worldview. And as a result, their world gets smaller and smaller and everyone becomes more and more partisan. And one of the great things about this country, there aren't that many, um, <laughs> and, and it's a shrinking list, but one of the great things is that we still do maintain that. And for all its ills, the BBC is at the top of the list from my perspective of the things that are fantastic. You know, it's, it's a source of great pride, but there is absolutely no doubt the right, the right have always distrusted it. 
which is ironic because they've been the most proactive in sort of strangling it and controlling it whenever they're in, in office, but particularly now. So they've always distrusted it. Um, and they've it's sort of a two-pronged attack at the moment. They're trying to get increasing control over it and and sort of uh, dictate its editorial line and, you know, and put people in senior positions that are, um, you know, former donors and candidates, etc., that completely undermine this supposed obsession with impartiality. Um, but at the same time, in doing that, they do undermine its credibility and therefore help to kind of destroy it from within. So it is, it's bizarre. It's this, sort yeah. of, you know, look like you're stacking the cards like, you know, in the, like Donald Trump um, um, filling the Supreme Court, you know, when he, when he possibly could or, or district judges and stuff across the country with favourable people who are going to, um, you know, uh, implement draconian uh, social policy and stop women from being, have, have abortions, et cetera, et cetera. Similar sort of policy to that in terms of, you know, let's just appoint um, um, stooges all o- in, in positions of power all over, the, you know, our biggest broadcaster to sort of tr- try and um, have a, a control over the editorial line. Um, but at the same time in doing that, recognise that when it all comes sort of tumbling down and people get fed up with it, it will be those very actions that are used to then undermine it and give people reason to sort of say, right, enough's enough. Let's just tear the whole thing up. And it, just, but, but, but get the, the sort of football side of this, because this is a football podcast, but the football <laughs> side of this is that it really, I think demonstrates actually in a very similar way to how Marcus Rashford stood up to the, you know, the, the, um, cruel policy of trying to deny during the the pandemic um, children um, access to free school meals, you know, those who were kind of most deprived and had missed out, you know, the most during a a period of time when they weren't, you know, their parents weren't able to, you know, get access to the, you know, the the job market in the way they they would have done before. Um, And it took him and his profile and his sort of belligerence to put pressure on on the government and and make them back down and bend to his will, and it's kind of the same with with Gary Lineker. All right, he's not he's not dictated policy in the same way, but he has made a noble stand against. Let's face it; it's a policy that anyone with e- even a slight shred of decency and humanity realizes is abhorrent and unforgivable in every conceivable way. It is, you know, he was he was criticised for. Uh, you, using a comparison, but it was you know, even even some Labour MPs were sort of you know towing the line that oh, it's totally inappropriate for him to make comparisons between uh, the 1930s in Germany and now. Firstly, he didn't actually do that, did he? He said the language was mm. similar. Mm. Um, and the thing is, it's it's it is similar. It is similar when you start using terminology like invasion and swarming and you start deliberately embellishing the number of people who are supposedly interested um, in conceivably ever at any point coming to this country um, and seeking uh, immigration status, you know, asylum, whatever. Um, that is exactly what the, uh, the the early years of the Nazis um, being in control in, in, in from what they, 33, they came into power. That's exactly the sort of stuff they did. That's how they got elected, the language they're using in the election campaign. And that's what they were doing before things got really, really sinister. So 
it, but it is incredible. It, re- it, it really did show the power of an individual, as the great James O'Brien said in a sort of monologue on his radio show this week, the power of an individual. If you are, if you have that sweet spot where you don't, you're not scared of any of these big power brokers in this country that usually have in the palm of their hand the ability to destroy you, to completely crush you, to undermine you and ruin your career. If you are independently wealthy enough to not have to be concern yourself with the, the sort of economic consequences of being destroyed and also kind of robust enough in your and, and secure enough in your sort of personal setting to be like, okay, yeah, fine, bring it on, throw as much mud at me as you want. I don't care. I'm going to stand up for vulnerable people. That is so threatening, as we learned last weekend, to, uh, to these people with vested interests who, you know, want to continue to dictate the narrative and undermine independent news uh, broadcasters and control them. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it made me, it made me feel really proud. It went, it went from being a really depressing beginning to the weekend and obviously, <laughs> but actually a really, what turned out to be a really hopeful experience seeing the, 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 the speed with which all his colleagues just walked out and went with him and said, no, you're not doing this. Enough's enough. You know, they're obviously, they obviously all, Sort of talk d- about it amongst themselves and sort of have those same opinions, don't they? Yeah, I don't think I helped your state of mind because <laughs> I was one of those people going, Lineker's fucked, he's going to get sacked, he's out. And I kept telling mm. you that, and I was, yeah, totally, totally wrong. I mean, it was amazing how quickly it happened because I listened to a podcast on Saturday that's obviously recorded on the Friday, FT Politics. Mm-hmm. And they were sort of, at that point, they were like, oh, you know, Gerolinica's tweeted this. They're not very impressed. Uh, they're talking about make you know stepping him down, blah blah. So they hadn't actually, you know. Uh, so it was really interesting the way they recorded it that it hadn't blown up, and it was literally, you know, it just had. It just was a whirlwind from the moment he was t- suspended to everyone quitting. And and one person that I feel has been really overlooked. I mean, yes, Gerolinica stepping forward, but the person who's been really overlooked, I feel is Ian Wright, because I think he was absolutely instrumental. He was. In, in getting Alex He was Scott. the first to go. Yeah. yeah, he was the first to go. He, you know, you know, kind of Alan Shearer obviously followed him behind. But then Alex Scott, you know, just because um, he's a big supporter of women's football, he's a, obviously an Arsenal. And Arsenal. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and the and the car, you know, they, they started it, everyone started falling into line. And I just feel like Ian Wright has not you know, no, I, he was so, he was so quick, and that was also the other thing. He was so quick, and it yeah. just it created momentum. Whereas I think if there wasn't that momentum, yeah. I don't think that yeah, if there'd been say twenty four hours between the news they, of the Nicholas BBC could have yeah. fronted it out. But Wrighty, I'd put in a very, in a very similar uh, sort of bracket to Lineker. Like he might not have that kind of you know golden sort of national hero status, but he is he is loved pretty much across the board. You'd have to be a a proper arsehole, really, not to love Ian Wright. And yeah. he, the interesting thing about Ian Wright and his sort of character development is that when he first sort of stopped playing and went into punditry, he was a bit of a sort of a slightly overexcited reactionary, really. And they'd have him in there just to sort of, you know, put a bit of a cat amongst the pigeons, and especially for England games. And he, it's really weird. It's like a completely different person. When you look back at footage of his early punditry days, 
it, he was actually really quite like jingoistic with his language and really into the whole, you know, pride of the shirt, rabble rousing sort of nonsense. And he's, I think a lot of it is that over the years, he's had quite a lot of sort of therapy and stuff and like, you know, personal development um, things going on because of various stuff that's sort of happened in his life. Yeah. He is now like an exceptional person. Uh, uh, you know, he, he's, he's an amazing bloke. He is so uh, empathetic. He is so like, on the button on all kind of social issues he's prepared to to speak out and like you say he's 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 genuine not and it's not tokenistic he's genuine support for women's football passionate support mm. the way that he called out um Alan Sugar as well uh during the uh, women's euros last summer you know i think that won him a, a lot of favor and what was great about his um withdrawal of labor shall we say from last weekend was that it was all because it was almost instantaneous it it demonstrated that he hadn't sort of sought approval yeah. on that and because and i suppose this is the similarity for with Lineker he's got himself to in a personal position i don't know as much about his sort of economic circumstances but i wouldn't imagine he's exactly struggling to pay the lecky bills but also i think he's in a he's at peace with himself to the extent that he i without wishing to speak for him i would imagine that he would have very much been Look, you know, if there are negative consequences of this, you know, say la vie. But, uh, you know, ultimately there are some things in life you have to, life's about making decisions. And am I prepared to go along down this, you know, fucking sewer, this sewer pipe of shit being, you know, dictated to by these awful fucking, you know, rancid Tories who are like, like, like at the bottom of the barrel trying to stoke a culture war because they've fucked up everything else in the country over the last 13 years and they're in, they're in the last chance saloon. So their last throw of the dice is just like divide and rule and, you know, get people ramped up about hating immigrants. Um, and and, and th- 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 those same people are now trying to sort of, you know, humiliate and victimise and undermine um, my mate and my sort of, you know, broadcasting friend and, you know, long-term associate, former England teammate, of course. And and, and, it, and it would have just like saying, no, I'm not fucking not. You know, I want, history will remember me much more kindly if I'm the guy, the first guy to step up and say, no, absolutely not, not having it. And what was great as well is that when all of these various, you know, presenters, commentators and pundits were tweeting to announce their, you know, that they were withdrawing their labour. They weren't sort of, you know, falling into the trap of being vitrionic and going in on sort of on the attack like I probably fucking would, like I am in this, you know, just because I get so, I just get so relentlessly angry. It's impossible not to. If you're a half-decent human being, I think, how you can not be angry with the way things have been, particularly in the last five, six years, um, in this country and the, the, the people who are representing us, uh, you know, it baffles me really. Um, but every single, without exception, every single tweet or public utterance was done in such a lovely, dignified way. It would be like, I love my job. I love working for the BBC. I'm so passionate about, you know, making this program and the team behind it. But this week I won't be taking part, you know, and that's kind of the line in which everyone sort of went down. So, and it's also smart from a self-preservation perspective as well, because you're yeah. not then cutting your ties. You're not yeah. saying sort of, fuck you, I'm off. You're sort of saying, look, I, I love making this program, but this is, you know, something really bad and sinister and underhand is happening here. And I'm going to, you know, I don't, I don't want to be seen to be supporting that. And I'm going to, I'm going to step aside. Yeah. So it was, it was quite impressive. It's going to be very interesting to when, when, because it's FA Cup quarterfinals this weekend. And it's going to be interesting to see 
whether whether Lineker with a little sort of twinkle in his eye will reference anything that's happened before or whether he will um, just, you know, professionalise it out and just go straight into, you know, the build-up to whatever, Man City against Burnley. Yeah, I think he might keep it. I think he might be a little bit more cautious only because I don't think he... He obviously didn't envisage what happened happening and he probably didn't enjoy it that much, even though he has come out massively on top. I think Mm. he was like, that was so unbelievably stressful. That was so horrific. He might, I don't know. Yeah, but don't forget, he's never never been accused of saying, being in any way partisan or impartial or unprofessional during his his entire, what, 25 odd years broadcasting career. It's it's his personal tweets, which really are, you know, let's... and it's a well-worn path now, but we can all point out the absurd double standards of the people on the right in this country losing their fucking mind about Gary Lineker and getting obsessed with seeing him lose his job and being hung out to dry, but they're prepared to overlook the countless other people who have worked for the BBC or worked for the BBC who are regularly tweeting very, very opinionated partisan stuff on social issues, economic issues, political issues, um, take the BBC coin, and but it's absolutely fine for them to do so. It's fine for Alan Sugar to. It's fine to have a chairman of the entire organisation who is, you know, completely compromised by a ludicrous amount of impartiality. You know, an actual facilitator of a credit facility for a sitting prime minister of eight hundred thousand pounds and a four hundred thousand pound donor out of his own money to the party. So that's fine. But it's because let's face it, we all know it's because they're scared of Gary Lineker. They're scared of Gary Lineker because he because he doesn't care and he won't be cowed out by the uh, the the sort of media barons in this country. So he won't do what he's told. He's dignified. He kind of rises above a lot of it. So they can't get him. They can't get him to get involved in a sort of tit tit for tat. Um, and because he's got nearly nine million. In fact, it's probably going up by you know an alarming. Well, not an alarming, but a brilliant rate now because you know he's had such an incredible week. But last time I looked, he had the best part of nine million Twitter followers, which is more than about the the first five or six top circulating newspapers get combined. So he doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need the support of anyone else. And he, what's fantastic about it is when he sort of came back into the fold on Monday and reach an agreement with the director general. It was again, in such a classy yet unapologetic way, because he didn't use it to point score. He just said, these have been a really difficult few days. I'm really delighted. We've reached an agreement and can move on. I can't wait to get back on, on, um, uh, on the screen. Uh, and I'd like to thank the director general for sort of helping me find a solution. But then he made a point. I've sitting a separate tweet term, but nothing I've experienced in the last few days, none of these, you know, the stresses and the struggle even come close to comparing with what the most vulnerable people in this world who are desperate and forced to flee from poverty, war or persecution, that what they have to encounter when they are, you know, desperate enough to try and reach these shores in a small boat. And I just think that is I mean, it's literally Suella Braveman's worst nightmare, isn't it? That he has got he has been massively publicized. And he has had a, a huge upsurge in popularity for taking on the government. The government, who were probably hoping that 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 policy would only really be noticed by the you know by the people who they designed it to attract, which is sort of you know 
rabid right wing angry reactionaries who um you know like to think that the troubles in their life are are due to um people you know coming over quote illegally trying to take their jobs and livelihoods and you know just get them angry get them wound up get them stoked keep them on vote making sure they'll vote tory in the next election but actually gary and nick's sort of noble protest and the fuss that was then went around it almost certainly led to probably a hundred times more people becoming engaged with that issue over the course of the last week. And as a result, that policy has had a much bigger light shone on it. More people are aware of it and more people are opposed to it. So it's gone full circle and has entirely backfired on the government. Um, I think they probably underestimate the extent to which most decent people don't want to see, um, you know, uh, pregnant women and women who are fleeing because they're, uh, you know, leaving an Iranian regime that would shoot them for not wearing a burqa or a judge who is uh, whose life is on the line because they tried to, you know, do their job um, sort of impartially in a, you know, in a, in a sort of toxic and, and venomous regime or, uh, you know, somebody f- fleeing child uh, trafficking rings or whatever. You don't want to see those people um, treated like criminals when they land on these shores. And, uh, you know, so fair play to Gary Lineker for helping, helping also just reassure people sometimes just in these bleak, bleak, bleak days, just need little moments where a, a light is shone where you think, actually, yeah, we're not alone in the world. Most people are still really decent and they want, they think, you know, they like, they love humanity. They want to do the right thing and they don't, you know, they're not just sucked into this perpetual cycle of, you know, hatred and division and, uh, and, and sort of blame and victimization. And, and who'd have thought a humble footballer who, you know, is always being told he should know his place and stick to sport uh, would be the person to to you know instigate and bring about all that. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So we'll finish, <laughs> one one last thing I will say is that uh, a, a phrase that's always really pissed me off is when people say, "Oh, politics and sport shouldn't mix," right? And polit- sport is such an intrinsic and influential and massive part of people's lives and society as well just by you know people if you take into account the the millions of people who participate in sport by actively doing it viewing it um you know um attending it um across any given weekend or any year uh you just as you can't remove therefore politics from any other element of society why should sport be any different and so i always feel that people who say that it's like the people who you know don't like um you know sort of talking about politics they'll say oh we don't like politics i'm always deeply suspicious of those people and the politics and sport don't mix people let's face it they're normally essentially just tories (laughs) who are who are too timid and lack the the gumption to actually look someone else in the eye and go, well, actually, I support them and I'm a Tory. And they're so lily-livered and pathetic and cowardly that they just, you know, use phrases like that. Oh, politics and sports shouldn't mix. Or, uh, yeah, no. Or even worse, they'll say, oh, but they're all the same. Or, (laughs) or, or, oh, if they were in power, they'd be doing exactly the same thing. It's inevitable because when they get in power, power corrupts. and that No, no bollocks these are the worst of times being run by the worst of people and any 
half decent human being can see that and will stand up to these rancid fascist bastards. <laughs> and on that bombshell, <laughs> promise you next week we'll talk more about you know the actual you know act of kicking the football. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know we can we can help it this week. So, you know. Have a bit of a political rant. So uh, until then, it's goodbye from Matthew. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye.